Proverbs chapter 22, we'll read the first six verses, then we'll jump to Ecclesiastes, touch on something there, then we'll pray and preach. A good name is more valuable than great riches. A good reputation is more valuable than silver or gold. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord created both of them. A prudent man recognizes bad decisions, recognizes danger, and takes precautions so that he avoids them. But the naive don't recognize bad decisions and suffer bad consequences. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. In other words, whenever we do things God's way, it always works out best. Thorns and snares are in the way of the corrupt, but he that doth keep his soul righteously shall be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and obey God. This is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. title of today's message is this, and we'll get to it at the end. Real men of God. Let's pray. Father, help me to be clear in these truths. Lord, our young dads out here to listen to the counsel that these older dads are giving them. Things that we have seen as we have raised our children. And Lord, help us as those in the fourth quarter of life to continue to model righteousness for these younger men and these middle-aged men so that, Lord, we can glorify you each and every day of our lives. Lord, bless this service and thank you that I am a father. Thank you for the father you entrusted me to. Thank you for this institution of fatherhood. What a privilege, but what a responsibility. Lord, we pray all this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I looked in the mirror on Friday morning. It was January the 5th, 2019. Cindy and I had just gotten up. We were going our typical daily routine. We have separate sinks and mirrors and things in the bathroom and my throat had been bothering me for several weeks, but it was December, and I just assumed that I was trying to fight off a cold. But I took my phone, and I turned the flashlight on, and I held it up to my mouth, and I looked in the mirror, and I could tell immediately that something was wrong. My words to Cindy were these. I said, I don't know what throat cancer looks like, but I think I have it. I called Doc Holson who was my personal physician at the time, and he was able to get me in. <laughs> I always chuckle at Doc's official diagnosis. He said, oh, that's ugly. <laughs> we did a strep test, which was negative. He made arrangements for me to get in and see an ear, nose, and throat specialist, which I did the following Thursday. When I went in to see that doctor, he said, it looks like you have cancer, but I can't tell for sure without doing a biopsy. Saying, you can come back in next week and we can get this done, or it'll hurt. I can just reach in there and take a snippet out of your throat right now, but we'll have the answer tomorrow. 
So I told him to go ahead and do that. Cindy and I are old enough to have begun thinking about the fourth quarter of our lives. We talk about our possible plans for growing old together. And as I left the doctor's office, I really didn't know what to do or where to go. I didn't know if I should tell her or not. After all, it might not even be cancer. But how can I keep this from her? She deserves to know the truth. So I did tell her. I owed it to her. And quite frankly, I needed her at that time. The next day I went to the office, did my normal routine. I had some counseling appointments that day. I had one member of our church that needed to visit. Had another prospective member of the church that wanted to come in and visit about some things. It was interesting. It was actually good for me. It was very therapeutic to be focusing on somebody else's problems. It was also kind of humorous listening to these problems, which are really not problems, knowing that I was going to be getting a phone call later that day was something that I certainly considered could potentially be a problem. Well, we had lunch as a staff back in the back, and my cell phone rang, and I answered the phone, and the doctor said it was, in fact, cancer, and that he would try to get me in to see a specialist at the cancer center within the next seven to ten days. So what are you supposed to do in the meantime? Cindy and I were scheduled to fly to Orlando the next day. I was supposed to preach in Orlando on Sunday. We could cancel. We could sit in the house and look at each other. Well, that wasn't going to do any good. We decided to go ahead and be busy about our business until we knew exactly what was going on. It was odd that week. We're trying to continue to fulfill our schedule and to make plans for the future, all the while recognizing that we might not actually have a future together. I remember we stayed at the Embassy Suites in Altamont Springs, beautiful area. It's Cranes Roost Lake there in the north suburbs. Remember waking up in the morning, and as you're trying to stir yourself awake out of a good night's sleep, thinking that, wow, that was an interesting dream, only to realize that it wasn't a dream. I really did have cancer. I was 55, and I really had cancer. Cindy and I would go about our business during the day. In the evening, we would come back and we would walk around Cranes Roost Lake. We'd been married for 30 years at that time. We would hold hands. We would talk. We would stop and hold each other and just cry. The encouraging thing is that I was in complete peace with the Lord. I'm ready to go to heaven. I didn't have a doubt in my mind about my salvation. But as I said a moment ago, we've been together for 30 years at that point. Now 32 years we've been together. And we've been thinking and planning about what we're going to do as we grow old together. And as we were there holding hands at the lake, I prayed for three things. Number one, I wanted to live long enough to see my sons get married. I wanted to live long enough to hold grandchildren. And if God would allow, I wanted to live and grow old with my wife. I don't want to leave her alone. I don't want her to leave me alone. 
About a week later, David Hansen and I were in Houston. David and Noni had spent a lot of time at MD Anderson. About 20 years ago, one of their sons had been treated extensively for stage 4 cancer. Rick Scarborough, our evangelist who you saw on the screen a moment ago, was from that area. He had a lot of connections. And between David and Noni and Rick, they insisted that I go to MD Anderson as they are renowned as the absolute best in cancer treatment. Cindy and I discussed it and figured that you only got one shot at this. You might as well leave nothing on the table. Well, we were in Houston, and I'm not much of a social media person, but the very first morning was David was taking me for my very first checkup, very first appointment at MD Anderson. I posted on Facebook about the situation that I was in. You know, when you're a young man, you have a lot of hopes and dreams. As you round third, there comes a point in life where you wonder if you've really accomplished anything. If you've really made a difference, has my life really mattered? If there was anything that was positive from what happened, this whole ordeal was the response that I received from that Facebook post. Literally thousands of responses from people whose lives I had touched somehow, some way, in a positive way through my athletics or through ministry. This was such a gift from God and was such a blessing. Solomon was David's son. And he assumed the throne after David's death. The first part of his reign was glorious, and God blessed him. He blessed him abundantly for his faithfulness. However, in his comfort, he took his eyes off the Lord and consequently lost his joy. And he tried to fill that void with happiness. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is temporal and temporary and based solely upon your current situation and circumstances. I'm happy when Oklahoma State wins. I'm unhappy when they lose. Therefore, I'm an unhappy man most of my life. <laughs> I'm happy when I hit a good golf shot. I'm unhappy when I shank one. Therefore, I'm, again, unhappy most of my life. But joy is a spiritual gift it's based upon your possession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and your position in the family of God and part of the body of Christ. Now, Ecclesiastes is the personal journal of Solomon's systematic pursuit of temporal happiness. He literally tried everything that the world says that we need to be happy. He tried power and fame and wealth and sex and luxury, and travel, and palaces, and leisure, and pleasure. But with every accomplishment, he sat back and recognized that's not it. Life's still empty. Vanity is the words that he uses in the King James Bible. And at the end, he came full circle. And he made this obvious conclusion of which we all need to be reminded. He said this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. There's only one thing that really matters. The only true source of peace and true joy is to honor the Lord, to bring glory to Him by trusting in Him and doing what He has designed us to do and do what He has commanded us to do. And Solomon spent his remaining days writing Proverbs or giving tidbits of advice to his sons and also... We enjoy them as we benefit from them. We read seven of them this morning. 
As a 58-year-old man who's now been married for 32 years and has had the joy of raising my sons to be adults and now enjoying a grandchild on this Father's Day, I would like to share my heart and my counsel, particularly with you young fathers. Let me share just a few things. Number one, teach your children what it really looks like to be a Christ follower. Although you now understand your purpose and big picture as a Christian, life is not easier, and all your problems don't just go away, neither do your sinful temptations. Christianity does not mean happily ever after. 1 John verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9 through 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we haven't sinned, then we're lying. We don't even know what His Word says. My little children, these things I write unto you, don't sin. But if you do, you have an advocate with the Father. Christ Jesus, the righteous, He is the propitiation, not just for your sins, but for the sins of the entire world. Ladies and gentlemen, you men, as I speak this morning, three things typically happen in church homes today. Number one, we pretend we don't sin. So our kids see what we say on Sunday, then they see us blow it on Monday, and if we don't deal with it, then our faith seems phony, therefore Christianity is phony. Number two, perhaps we are phony. We're nothing more than church members, but we've never been born again. So we do make-believe on Sunday. Then the real us, who's as lost as a goose, lives a life contradictory Monday through Sunday. And again, Christianity seems phony. It's not Christ that's phony. It's you that's the phony. Or number three, we resort to being legalistic. We make them obey, which is fine for children. But as kids grow into adults, the only thing that will truly restrain them is a genuine love of Christ, not fear of getting caught. In that case, as soon as these kids leave home, they leave the chains of the church. This is the biggest mistake that we make. Now understand, there's a lot of pressure for a Christian we wonder, why do I still have temptation to sin? Is something wrong with me? No. As Christians, we don't just have one nature. We have two. And most of the time, they're in conflict. We have this old Adamic sinful nature full of selfishness and lust, fighting with the spirit of holiness that now indwells our bodies of flesh as believers. But we don't stop being tempted to do wrong. We're all tempted. The Scripture says the devil goes about like a roaring lion looking for people that he can destroy whoever crosses his path. Satan even had the audacity to attempt to tempt Jesus Christ. Now the good news is, as a Christian, greater is he who lives in us than he that is in the world. As a Christian, just because we're tempted doesn't mean that we have to say yes to the temptation. We can, in fact, flee fornication. We can, in fact, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. However, sometimes we succumb. Sometimes we do make mistakes. No, it's not all right, as John said, but it's normal. And when you blow it, that's not cause for you to give up and say, I'm a failure. That's cause for you to ask the Lord to forgive you. And then, dads, ask those whom witnessed your failure, 
Ask those whom you have offended to forgive you as well. The Bible says that we all have particular areas of weakness, a, a particular sin which so easily besets you. Some may fall towards lust. Some may fall towards covetousness. Some may ta- to fall towards pride. Mine happens to be temper. I used to be an athlete. I'm very competitive. About 10 years ago, we were watching, I'm sure it was an Oklahoma State, Oklahoma football game which is the source of 90% of my sin in life. (laughs) And as Oklahoma State was doing something to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, in our living room, we happened to, at the time, we had a big leather Thomasville writer's chair with a big leather ottoman. At one particular moment, I kicked that ottoman with such force that it went airborne across the room. It was a kick that even Uwe von Schaman would have been proud of. Now, my wife knows when I'm having one of my fits, just leave me alone. It really doesn't take me long to come back to reality, and I'm always ashamed of my behavior, which I was then. But my boys were witnesses to it. So how did I handle it? Well, a few minutes later, I asked the Lord to forgive me. And then I apologized to my wife, and I apologized to my sons, and I asked them to forgive me as well, and I owned up to the fact that I blew it. Dads, take the pressure off your children. Show them how to handle it when you do blow it. Yeah, we aim for perfection, but we're never going to attain perfection. Sinning is never okay, but temptation is normal, resistant, And those times when you blow it, break out the Christian's bar of soap, which is 1 John 1, 9. And understand that the Christian life is not a perfect one. So take the pressure off your kids by showing them how you truly walk with Jesus. Advice point number two. Men, love your wives. Show your sons what a Christian man looks like. Real men don't look at pornography. Real men don't cheat on their wives. Real men provide for their wives. Real men protect their wives. By the way, Jesus was not a sissified man as we try to present him in the modern church. Jesus was raised the son of an, uh, the adopted son of a carpenter. Jesus would have been a carpenter and a stonemason by trade. Jesse Stone, who preached last week as a young man that learned stonemasonry and carpentry under his dad. Jesse Stone is also a mixed martial artist as well as a preacher. Jesse and Gene both have forearms like pipes. I can assure you that when Jesus stepped into the temple and kicked over the money changers' tables and took a scourge and chased them all out of the temple, that wasn't a Joel Osteen moment. But real men are gentle men, especially to their wives. 
1 Peter 3, 7 says this, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto your wife as the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Let me translate that. Use your brain, you big dummy. Your wife is precious. She's a treasure. Treat her like it. Don't be a physical bully because you're bigger and stronger physically. Don't be emotionally cruel because we have that capability of being so. The Bible says that we are to agape our lives. What does that mean? You are to be patient and kind, not jealous or boastful or proud or rude, not self-seeking, not irritable, not keeping record of whatever she does wrong, not rejoicing about injustice, but rejoicing whenever truth wins out. Your love for her never gives up, never loses faith, never loses hope, never loses endurance through every circumstance. And quite frankly, ladies, this applies to you as well. You should treat each other better than you did on your first date. Why is it that you're always so gracious and courteous on that first date? I'll tell you why. Because you're trying to con that person into going out with you a second time. Or you're trying to convince that guy he needs to ask you out a second time. So why is it But after you enter into a covenant before a holy God with assembled witnesses and you become one in the Lord that you assume it's okay to treat each other like garbage? It never should happen. If you treat a total stranger with kindness and patience, how much more so should you teach your, treat your own blood of your blood, bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, your own body, your own bride? Or wives, your own husbands. Why do either of us insist on getting the last word? Let me give you some great advice. I don't care whether you've been married one week or 50 years. Try this. Think about that sassy, snide, cutting comeback that you work up. Then don't say anything. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. And men, chances are your son is going to be the same kind of husband and father that you are. So you be God's man and you train him to be the same. My dad, as Dan was sharing about his dad, cherished my mother. I knew my dad loved mom. Dad provided for mom. Dad protected my mom. You want to talk about security as a child growing up. If you want your child to have emotional security, give him a secure, stable home to go home to every day. And man, God gave you a wife to be your help, to be your completer. She will follow you until you prove that she cannot trust you. I told my sons their entire lives, I couldn't give a rip whether they played football or not. As a matter of fact, I tried unsuccessfully to get them to play golf. I did my time in football. I didn't need to live my life vicariously through them. The one thing I emphasized both in training and in lessons was this. I wanted them to be godly fathers and I wanted them to be godly husbands. 
and raise your daughters to be cherished as women of God. You treat them with respect as young ladies, and then they'll not settle for a husband that won't do the same. And dads, kids want your presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. Not your presence. I spent some time this last week with an old friend. Known him since college. Very successful. Very successful. Hard-working man. Didn't believe in taking time off. Worked about 18 hours a day. Good family, but his children are distant. His children don't know him now that they're grown. Now there's some remorse for that. Understand your kids need you. Don't make them seek your approval. Don't deprive them of your attention. Give them your blessing. I asked both Joshua and Jacob recently and independently what they remembered about life growing up. They remembered putting up and taking down Christmas lights together. Every year we'd take the lights down and write myself a little note and stick it in the box, guessing what my weight would be next year when I'm putting the lights up. They remembered playing monkeys and gorillas, which was our version of King of the Hill. Dad was the big gorilla. I'd be up on top of Mom and Dad's king-size bed. They were little twerps, like six, seven, eight. They'd get up and try to knock me off the bed. Of course, we'd wrestle around, and, and you know, and they loved that. We'd play sharks and minnows in our pool. Of course, I was the shark. They would be on the shore trying to swim across the pool without me getting them or get on a raft. They remembered Sunday or Saturday mornings with me making Daffy Duck pancakes and Mickey Mouse pancakes while we watched Warner Brothers cartoons together. What do they remember? They remembered our time together. All the things we did, all the stuff that I bought them through the years, not any of that was mentioned. What they remembered was our presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. There's never been a man that's been on his deathbed said, I wish I had spent more time in the office. So make sure you invest time with your family. And acknowledge their accomplishments. Reward them. Give them approval. And this, men, young dads, love them enough to discipline them. There is a reason why God created us with all this extra tush back here. All this extra cushion without any bones that can be broken. And let me tell you this. The toughest thing you'll ever do as a parent is having to discipline your child. But you must do it if you truly love them. God himself says, For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father in the son whom he delights in. My boys often debate whether the whipping was worse or whether the lecture before the whipping was worse. But I had a leather belt that we called the peacemaker. And I didn't have to spank them often. But occasionally I had to. And it was always either back to my office or back to our master bedroom. First thing we would do is we would sit down and we would talk about what happened, what went wrong, why it went wrong, why I was having to do what I was about to do from a biblical point of view. 
Then I would paddle them, and I would leave them alone as they cried for a few minutes. Then I would come back in. I'd pick them up, put them in my lap, and I'd hug on them and love on them. And again, we would review and we would talk about what happened and why it happened. Dads, don't be selfish. Don't be so concerned about being liked or being their friend that you neglect to be their parent. They have friends. What they need is guidance. There's so much more. But let me just say this. Don't lecture them. Show them. They will listen far more with their eyes than they will with their ears. I love these pictures. At two different points in their life, because they were 20 months apart, unsolicited, they would come in and they would see my shoes sitting over on the side of the room. And it's just instinctive. Here's little Joshua putting dad's shoes on, walking in dad's shoes. Here's little Jacob putting dad's shoes on, walking in dad's shoes. As much as I tried to get them to play golf, they wanted to play football. Why? Because that's what dad did. Trust me, even down to the mustache, they will follow what you do and not as much what you tell them to do. Show them how to manage money. Show them how to honor the Lord with the first fruits of your increase. Show them how to be a man of integrity by keeping your word. Show them what a godly family looks like. And men, don't worry. You're going to make mistakes. That's okay. We all blow it. But I recommend that you ask advice from your parents or from others in the room. Let me tell you what, experience is a great teacher. Some of us that have already walked this trail may be able to give you some advice that will allow you to avoid the potholes. And older men, we never stop modeling. You show that middle-aged young man in church. You show that young married young man in church. You show your sons how a man of God lives and approaches the sunset of his life. The overall majority of my life, I really haven't been satisfied with. I've often joked with my wife that I want her to engrave the word almost on my tombstone. We almost beat OU. They kicked a last second field goal, literally, to beat us 21 to 20. I hate Tim Lasher. I hate him. We almost beat Nebraska. They scored a second half touchdown and beat us 14 to 10. We almost, we were ranked number two in the country. We almost won a national championship. We almost got back to the Super Bowl. I almost had a long, wealthy NFL career. I often said, I told my parents growing up, I know I'm going to cripple myself, but it'll be worth it. I'll be rich. Well, boy, the Lord got the last laugh on that when all I got was crippled. And I'm sure Dan can attest to this. We, we, often, 
We often make appointment, appointments as co-pastors to complain on each other's shoulder. But I've never been satisfied with our ministry. We've been working for 15 years with the Reclaiming America for Christ effort, recognizing what could potentially happen if we didn't repent and change directions. And now, here we are. It's actually happening. I met a man this last week in Orlando when we were speaking at the villages. He is, he's been married for 72 years, Irving and Bernice Locker. Irving Locker is a veteran from the D-Day invasion. He actually hit bloody Omaha, Omaha Beach. He served under General Patton all the way through uh, Germany's surrender. He has memorabilia that he collected all the way through. He's got a flag that he took down off the wall in Berlin. I look at this man, part of our greatest generation, and now here we are, a laughingstock on the world stage. I'm not satisfied with my work, but there's one thing I couldn't be any more proud of than I am. I've been married to my perfect life mate for 32 years. We've raised two sons that God has blessed us with. I've lived long enough to see them both happily married. I have two daughters-in-law that I literally adore, and I've been able to hold my grandson. I close with this story, which is how I got the title of the message. Actually, we were having dinner on Tuesday night with some individuals. Dan and I were with a group of about 10 people. And over the course of the conversation, I was catching up with an old friend. And he shared how he had had the joy of leading his father-in-law to faith in Jesus Christ. His father-in-law was a, he, he was a Sicilian. So you can let your imagination run wild. But he was a tough guy. He was a man's man. And he wasn't impressed with Christianity at all. Why? Was it because of Christ? No. It was because of the so-called Christian men whom he had known. Most had either been unfaithful to their wives or were obvious hypocrites or were just weak, sissified men. He didn't want anything to do with it. But my friend, his son-in-law, was the real deal. He was all man, and he loved Jesus with all his heart. And when his father-in-law experienced what real Christianity was, then he was able to see the reality of what it really meant to walk with Jesus day by day as your Lord. And my friend made this statement from which we have derived our title. He said, we have a void of real men of God. That's what my call is this morning. To you as young men in your homes, or you as older men's modeling in the twilight of your lives, be a real man of God.